Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Gaynor McGrath, author of Lemniscate. Gaynor, welcome. Thank you very much, Maggie. I'm very happy to be with you. Now, before we begin our chat, um, can you just read a little bit from Lemniscate to give the listeners a taste of the book? Yes, I can do that. Um, I'm going to read from page 220, which is about halfway through the book. When I come home Saturday afternoon, there is a big gap in the lantana, and I can hear men's voices on the veranda. I lean my bike on the side of the house and walk through the gap. The grass has been mowed, all the furniture has been taken out of the room, and Dad and the boys are busy with brooms and dustpans. Gosh, thanks, Dad, boys. I thought it would take me weeks. It's pretty small, Elsie. Are you sure it's what you want? Absolutely. The northern wall is nearly all windows. The southern is the brick wall of the house. The narrow eastern wall is also mostly a window, and the western wall contains the door, and not much else, leading onto the veranda. I'll have to work on these windows to get them opening and put a lock on the door. I'll get the lock fixed on the front door, too, so you can come in and out. And I'll give Bob a ring to come and put a light in here, and a PowerPoint if you want. Overwhelmed, I nod dumbly. It'll be very hot in here with just the Galway roof, so I'll scavenge some boards and work at work and make you a ceiling. Dad, thank you so much. I never expected all this. Have a look at the furniture, Elsie. There's your old bed and a bit of Grandma's old furniture. See if you want to use any of it. There is a narrow wardrobe ornately carved with a long mirror and a deep bottom drawer and a matching dressing table with folding mirrors. Under a pile of cardboard boxes is a cane lounge. I suddenly see my young dad carrying the white bundle of my grandmother and gently lowering her onto the lounge. I touch it thoughtfully and remember that Grandma died on the lounge in this very room. Perhaps that is why it was never used again. I watch my dad checking the outside wall. Is this why he is helping me? Then another image, Father Kelly, a black stole around his neck administering extreme action. Dad kneeling beside the lounge and Mum and we children kneeling on the veranda outside the door, Mum jiggling a whimpering baby. I touch the lounge again. So many memories you carry, I say to it. There is a tall straight-backed cane chair that I also mark for usefulness and a leather poof with a red camel etched on it. I try to recall seeing it before, but all the memories are overlaid by the sooks of Cairo. I will sit Sebastian on the poof and take him on tours of Egypt, just as Uncle Eamon used to tell me tales of Ireland on the seat under the locust tree. In one of the boxes I find a round rag mat of faded colours. This too stirs something in me, and I put it on the lounge with the poof. None of the other boxes hold any interest till I come to a carved wooden chest. It is locked. My hand instinctively feels for the smooth brass key slipped into the hidden groove in the side of the chest. Inside are neatly packed painted wooden blocks, and I sit on the floor turning the blocks over, feeling them tug at me. Dad and the boys have long since left when Mum comes out with a cup of tea for me. Elsie, how did you get that old chest open? We looked everywhere for the key. It was hidden here in a groove. I wonder how come I remembered. It was your chest. Uncle Ron came on leave from Malaysia and brought it for you and Joe, and I bet he told you to keep it a secret. I'd forgotten you kept your blocks in there. The last month that Grandma was alive, you and Joe used to sit on this old rag mat next to her bed and play with your blocks all day. 
I never once heard you squabble. Grandma used to love dozing to the sound of your voices, talking and laughing. And whenever she needed anything, you two would run into me and take over the babies while I looked after Grandma. You were such good children. How old were we? Well, Trish was a babe in arms, and Gemma would have been one and a half, so that makes you four, and Joe six. That'd be right. You were so capable, Elsie. You were changing nappies at three and bathing the girls at four, and Joe was a champion of entertaining them. So we spent a whole month playing with the blocks in the sleep-out, keeping Grandma company. Yes, now that I think of it, Joe was recovering from pneumonia and had to be kept home and warm. You two were always good mates, but after that you were inseparable. And then one day I came out with your lunch and you were talking in whispers. I asked you why you were whispering and Joe said it was because Grandma's guardian angel was visiting. I went over to her and she'd passed away. Father Kelly had performed the last rites just the day before. What happened then? Oh, I expect I called the doctor and rang your dad's work. You know how it is. Anyway, Elsie, I'd better get tea going. I take down the mat and sit on it and begin building the blocks. I will write a letter to Joe tomorrow. Is this why we are the only two single ones, why we are the ones who had to go away? Were we little, isolated, independent children who never needed anyone? Hmm. Yep, that's it. And tell me, tell me why you chose that passage to read. Oh, it took me a long time to think what I would read for five minutes. Um, I think because um, I really enjoyed writing that book. Uh, I lived lived in that part of it quite very well, and it uh, took me along to other things. Yeah, it really picks up the I guess the relationship that Elsie has with her family as well, and uh, why you know how she feels when she's there, as opposed to how she feels about them when she's away. Yes, yes, there's a sort of entree into the family with, with coming into the, that area and, and also an understanding of who she is and why she's different. Mm. I love the Proustian quality of the lounge and the, the chest as well and how they conjure up a whole series of memories. Yes. Mm. The, the book has a real ring of truth to it. Um, you know, I, I always get quite cranky when people assume that what I'm writing is true. But, um, and I know that the line between fact and fiction is really fuzzy. But there's so much truth in this book. It really strikes home. Did you, did you travel like Elsie? I did. Um, what happened was that I, I already had a book kind of floating around in my head as I was doing the gardening. And um, my dad died and we were cleaning out the house and I found all the letters I'd written home. And um, there were um, letters from that period of traveling. And uh, it took me a long time to read them. And, of course, they brought back memories of what I'd done when traveling. But the thing that really hit me was how much I liked that person, how optimistic and interested and kind of charmingly innocent she was. <laughs> I thought, wow, is that still me? And then I thought, oh, this could be the person in my story. So it sort of went from there. So you'd been kicking around the, the idea of writing this novel for a while before you started. Yeah, I had an idea of writing about reunion. I'm always touched by reunion. I, I was kicking around with that idea, and then I had to see a specialist about something, and I can't remember how it came up, but he told me that he'd once been a young hippie living on Mission Beach in North Queensland, and after I kind of got over the shock of any of those people turning out to be 
um, specialist, <laughs> I, um, I just thought, wow, you know, I'd been at Mission Beach too, and and this whole thing of a reunion that could be that that I have a character who gets pregnant at, at on Mission Beach, and then later, years later, goes to this doctor and finds the father at last. And so I, I, that was kind of the idea I was working with when I found these letters. And then I thought, when you're traveling, you just meet up with people all the time. So I, instead, I would locate this per, person that my character has reunions with through the traveling path. Mm. And there are quite a few reunions that they have, don't they? They, they keep coming back together. Yes, yeah, so well, that, that was the nature of traveling. I don't know how it is now, but when I was young, you kind of all traveled the same route and you just kept bumping into people. Mm. So tell me a bit more about um, Elsie and Kiwi. They're, they're really quite compelling in the way they, they keep pulling towards one another and then pulling away, I guess. Yes. What what sort of thing do you mean? Well, tell me a little bit about, uh, I guess, the characters behind them. What drives them? Okay. I I think that Elsie, she's, she's heading home. That's one of the things she's doing. And um, so that's kind of keeps her on one line towards home and she's she's um, just interested in what comes along as she goes along. She's pretty easy going like that and um, just kind of takes life as it comes and and likes to likes to have adventures as she goes along. But Kiwi uh, I see is a much more complex person in a way because He's um, he's wheeling and dealing a bit as he travels around, and he's um, not not as open-eyed innocent. He's actually seeing how he can take advantage of his travels and sell things from one place to another and things like that. So, and he's he's lives on the um, you know with nothing, and and that that's quite attractive to Elsie, who lives almost with nothing, and then she sees somebody who can live even more like that. And it's such a picture of youth too, isn't it? I mean, I think you almost get that just a slight hint through the book of the longing um, that I guess, you know, the sort of staid middle age feels towards those periods of time before we begin, you know, building up uh, almost like a prison around ourselves. They're kind of free, aren't they? Yes, the age of 21 to 25, it's really the age of adventure, I think. Mm. Like, I'm very attracted to that age because I think it's, an adventurous age and, and you can do anything. You're old enough to look after yourself and young enough to risk everything. She gets away with a lot though, doesn't she? <laughs> yes, that Elsie does. She's sort of like the Mr. Magoo. <laughs> <laughs> so without giving too much away, um, do you feel that she's found what she was looking for by the end of the novel? Um, yeah, I wanted to leave that pretty open. In my original story that I had in my mind when she finds this person it's the 80s and he's got AIDS and she nurses him as he dies I've always been a tragic sort of person and but then when when it changed I um I wanted to I didn't want to have a final ending so I wanted to leave it open because I think life's like that mm. it's hard to imagine Elsie and Kiwi settled though isn't it <laughs> Oh, yeah, well, I don't know. My, my daughter, when she finished it, she rang me and she said, Mummy, tell me a story. Tell me about Elsie and Kiwi after the end of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a sign of a good book that um, you leave people just a little bit hungry for more. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> 
So it, it is your first novel, but I imagine like most first novelists, it isn't your first for, foray into the world of professional writing. Is that right? Oh, pretty well. I, I once had an article published in a magazine <laughs> a long time ago, one page. Yeah, I just, I don't know. It just sort of, I got to this point where I had to write one of my stories down. I've always had stories going on in my head and never thought of myself as a writer, really. Well, as as a publishable writer. So tell well, me, this is a nice surprise. <laughs> and tell me a bit about the path you travelled to, I guess, get to having a published book. How did you find Transit Lounge and what, what process did you go through? Okay. Um, so the book was easy to write, I have to say. Once I started writing, I couldn't stop. It just kind of poured out of me. And um, it was no struggle at all. I just couldn't stop writing. And then I finished writing it. And I um, there's a bloke called Peter Bishop from Varuna in um, the Blue Mountains. Yes, I know Peter well. <laughs> he comes around the country centres and uh, reads bits of aspiring writers' work and Helps him along a bit. Anyway, he came along and um, I thought he'd tell me it was fabulous. Like I'd worked so much on the opening paragraph, he was going to say, this is the opening paragraph to die for. And he said, well, your opening paragraph doesn't really work, does it? So <laughs> <laughs> fell off my chair. And he, um, but he suggested taking it out of the past tense and putting it in the present tense and out of the third person and into the first person. So... I didn't like that idea and I, I wrestled with it for a year, uh, really, and, and then I finally gradually went to change the tense and then I changed the person and then I thought it really came alive. I was really happy with it. He's amazing, Peter, isn't he? He, he, he does. Is. He does that. He says one or two words to you and suddenly everything changes. Yeah. <laughs> so the next year I took it along to him after I changed it all and he said, look, I think you could take it to a publisher and he suggested Transit Lounge. And um, I was very, very lucky that uh, Barry Scott at Transit Lounge liked it and wanted to publish it. Like, it was a fairly painless experience for me. That's brilliant. So no rejection letters? Sorry, what was that? No rejection letters. <laughs> no rejection letters. <laughs> I wouldn't have taken more before, many before I gave up, I can tell you. <laughs> That's brilliant. So um, tell me a little bit about, about the day job, about your teaching. Okay. I work in a Rudolf Steiner school here in Armidale and um, we don't have principals in our school so I am the educational administrator. So I, the College of Teachers looks after the educational side of the school and I do the administrative side of that. So that's part of my job. The other part of my job is I work with children with learning and behaviour difficulties. So I've got a job split in half really. Yeah. Mm. And I guess there's a certain approach, there's a certain, um, I guess, focus that Steiner schools have that's quite different to other schools. Do you feel that, the, I guess, some of the philosophy behind the book um, links into that? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, I can't see that. Maybe it's true, but... Um, I can't see it. I, I've always lived in my imagination. And, of course, storytelling is a big part of Steiner education, but it really fitted in with where I am as well. So, yeah, maybe, do, do you see something? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just thinking about the way in which, I guess, Elsie struggles, her family representing, I guess, you know, a, a kind of conservatism. Yes. And how she struggles against that and struggles against 
certain types of constraints or norms yes. to try and find a creative core in her life. Yes, you think that Steiner schools might be like that? Uh, to a certain extent, but you probably know better than I would about that. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. But certainly that didn't influence me at all. We don't feel like we're struggling. Like most of the time we're just so glad that we're able to provide such a great education for children. <laughs> um, I don't think there's such a sense of struggling. Okay. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit more about, um, I guess, about how the novel developed. Um, you say it was, it, it just kind of wrote itself. Did you follow the, the path of your, your travels? Did you use yes. those letters? Yes, I did. Yes. There was, you know, I didn't tell my parents everything. I told them bits and pieces. So uh, there were things that I, I just used the germs of things to, to kind of develop what, what could have happened. And once I put Elsie in there, well, she did different things, so it all changed. But it was a very good kind of resource for me to use, to remember the names of hotels and uh, trains and routes travelled and things like that. So I suppose it gave you the structure that you could build this character's life on. Um, yeah. I, I, I think that... Um, I thought I, there were quite a few good stories in there to tell, and I wanted to, um, I guess I wanted to show Elsie as, as this person who would take on anything, and then how she comes up against the conservatism and what's expected of her in life, and how that's actually harder for her than this tough traveling that she does. Mm. Uh, do you feel that, um, that there's a certain correspondence, I suppose, between Elsie's quest and the quest of many young people? I do, yeah, but only in retrospect. I wasn't thinking of that at the time. But I, I do think that there's a sort of searching that goes on, trying to find one's true place and all that sort of thing. Mm. I, I did have the most amazing experience. One Christmas while I was writing it, I was wanted to bring Elsie back to Sydney from Queensland. And I was thinking about where I put her, and uh, so I was walking around Glebe with my daughter and saying, I, I think Glebe might be the place, let's look around. And we walked along the footpath, and there were some carvings in the footpath, and a whole patch of carving was just the name Elsie. I thought, my God, this is her place. <laughs> so that was a funny thing. Did your name come quite quickly to you? The name's my mother's name. Okay. Yeah, my my mum hated it, and... Uh, she became a Catholic later in life and took a new name and was glad to leave that one uh, um, behind her. But I had always loved it, so I asked my sister when I was writing it, because my mum was a very sort of adventurous sort of person. I, I just thought, oh, I'd love my mum's spirit to be part of this character. So, And yeah, I, could, I, just, I couldn't get out of my head the line from Cabaret, you know, when I go, I'm going like Elsie. <laughs> Oh, right. <laughs> yes, it was funny because Barry had just published a book by uh, with a main character called Elsie, and he asked me if I would change the name, and I was just gobsmacked. <laughs> it's quite unusual. It's uh, I guess it's it's one that um, sort of catches the eye. Yes, yes, it is an unusual name. Mm -hmm. So um, tell me a little bit about what you're working on now. You, do you feel, you, firstly, I guess, do you feel pressure to come up with another novel now, now that you're sort of set in that? Yeah, no, I don't feel pressure. Um, I have at least six 
books in my head. And I, I've learnt finally, instead of trying to work on all of them, to write a little bit and then shelf them and just write on one, write with one. None of them are coming easily like Lemonscape did. It just tumbled out of me. I thought, well, writing is a breeze. <laughs> now I've got to work hard. And uh, I also, I seem to have less time. I work more in my day job than I was at that time. And... Yeah, so it's more of a struggle. So the thing that I'm really working on now is a, um, it's either a children's book or a young adult book. I'm not sure where it would be categorised. But it's uh, about a child who's abandoned by her family and um, sort of adopted by a young woman, and it's set in Venice. Hmm. So will that, will that be a bit tricky? Will you have to go over? Is it a good excuse for some more travel? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> And I did manage to get hold of the letter that you wrote to the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, tell me a little bit about restorative justice versus detention and suspension. Is this a topic, oh, okay. topic of a future book, perhaps? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, um, I had recently been at a workshop of um, people from independent schools, Catholic schools and public schools, and um, I noticed that a lot of people were following restorative justice and I'm personally passionate about it in schools and feel that it could make all the difference to people who are in danger of having problems later in life. So it's about um, getting children to really think about, say they've hit another child, you know, describe it exactly, why did you do it? Um, what could you have done better? What would you do next time? Things like that. What school rule did it go against, etc. And then you, at the end, you come to um, the child has to come to the point of apology, but they also have to make up. So instead of a punishment, they think it's something to make up. So say a child hits a child, you might get that, them to then sharpen all the pencils of that child or something like that. Something to give good mm. when bad has been given. So it's sort of come out of circle sentencing and coming to the schools now. And, yeah, it's a wonderful way of um, help, helping children to find a new way with what they're doing. Whereas if you just say, okay, Joe, you hit him, you're on detention, they don't really learn anything. Yes, and I suppose then they begin to feel like that's who they are, that they're actually bad. Yeah. And, and it creates a lifetime, I suppose, of, or you know, potential lifetime of, of hurting because they start to put themselves in that role. Yes, that's right. Whereas helping can make them feel better about themselves. Yes. Yeah. So, so that that you could put that in your children's. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I look, honestly, Maggie. I mean, you're a writer too, and you would know all sorts of things come out of your own life. But it's not necessarily what you think, is it? No, no. And it's not necessarily what you originally intend either. Morali morality comes out of the characters, not out of the, you know, as a driving force. Yeah, that's right. I used to hear the author saying, well, I didn't know what the character was going to do next. I thought, rubbish, they're writing it. But it's true. You give them a bit of a character and then they actually are going to go somewhere you don't expect. So it's interesting. Yes. And do you find, because again, you know, I get back to this notion of verisimilitude, and I, you know, I, read, I read a couple of the reviews, and I think a lot of people will read your novel and go, oh, you know, this is a memoir, this isn't a novel. Um, yes, you know, right. do, do you find that a bit frustrating, that, you know, you created this character who has her own innate truth, and that people seem to somehow, you know, always look for something outside of that? 
the reference point? Yeah, well, actually, Barry wanted to publish it as a memoir because I had used um, my travels in Asia. But um, I really fought against that because none of the rest, I mean, a lot of that, the travel, is comes from my own travels, but the rest of it is totally a creation. And so... Um, and through the travels, the people are all creations too. It's really only the places and incidents that I've used. But, um, oh well, you know, <laughs> I hope I've written a novel. <laughs> so, um, I, I'll talk to you about one more thing. Um, we're rapidly running out of time. But um, one thing that's always dear to my heart, which is about um, how you manage, I guess, to continue the long-term, I guess, not urgent creative work against the sort of fairly urgent day-to-day -day job? Yeah. It, it is tricky it, because I find I can't just make a bit of time, like I say, every Saturday I'll write because I might not feel like it at all. Whereas I imagine if you can write all the time, I keep thinking of Patrick White and his private income. <laughs> if you could write it all the time and got into the routine, you know, you, you'd be right with it. But... Yeah, it, it, I think that the the demands of the daily job takes away from the creative ability, really. Do, does it inspire you as well, though? Do you get inspired by your work with the kids? Well, of course. You know, like I'm writing this children's book and I, I'm, I'm imagining 10 to 14-year-olds. So all the 10 to 14-year-olds, I'm imagining I'm talking to them. You know, it, it can be very inspiring. Yes. And do, do you feel like Lemniscate could work as a young adult novel as well? Oh, I don't know. I suppose it could in a way because it is, I mean, I don't really understand what young adult is, but it seems to be right up till 25. So in, in a way it would fit right in there. Yes, I mean, I suppose it's a fairly young character. It's a different time, I suppose. Do you yes. think that, though? Is it is it different now? Do you, do you think that, you know, you couldn't write a novel like Lemniscate set in 2009? That we can't travel in that way anymore? Well, I think, I think we can't travel in that way, although I know people who've done, young people who've done some pretty adventurous travel. Um, I, th I just think those places would be different. You could travel in different places and still have the same experiences. I, I think there's a, a slowness of life, like most people wouldn't take that long coming home mm. that doesn't exist anymore. And um, I would imagine in Muslim um, families and so on, there would be the same sort of difficulties. But in Catholic families now, you wouldn't you wouldn't have that extreme conservatism that came straight out of the fifties. There, there also seems to be a wonderful naivety that you yes. don't see that often in young people anymore. They're, we've almost become too sophisticated, haven't we? That could be true. And uh, you know, I was saying to somebody recently that. When you couldn't afford to ring home and you only wrote on aerograms and, and you didn't have iPods so you didn't have your own music and you didn't have mobile phones and you didn't have the email, you had to be there in the moment more. And I think that's taken away from now. Mm. We, we do tend to um, reflect an awful lot, don't we? I mean, between our Twittering and, uh, yeah. uh, you know, and the, the constant referencing ourselves in our yes. media. Yes, that's absolutely true. Mm. So um, what can we expect to see then in the future? Um, you, you've got a fan base now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, I, I really want to go ahead and, and get this uh, children's book finished. And I've got another book that I really love, 
about a, a, a bloke that witnesses a murder and doesn't do anything to stop it and uh, how that haunts him in his life. And uh, I've forced myself to put it aside, but I'm busting to get to it. So hopefully I will get more done. Well, wonderful. We'll, we'll look forward to that. Okay, thanks, Maggie. All right, that's all we have time for today. Um, our next guest is Lorraine Mace, and that show will be a little different from usual because it'll be an open call-in show. So we're going to open the lines and allow people to call in and actually talk to Lorraine. So they can ask questions. You can ask questions about her latest book, which is about moving abroad. Um, and uh, it's quite an interesting book as well. We'll get to that. And about writing, her previous book about writing, or anything at all. So don't miss that. Thanks very much. Thank you, Gaynor. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.